Hello everyone and thank you for joining us on this fourth episode of the Expert Review. Expert Review is a Harney's podcast series which hosts selected guests and friends who are experts in their field to discuss hot topics in governance, regulation and tax with a focus on issues and other challenges faced by us as advisors, our clients and the wider community. My name is Elena Mantrelli. I am a senior associate at Harney's in our investment funds and regulatory team. We are joined again today by Phil Lee, partner in Field Fisher's leading privacy, security and information law group in London. I am delighted to have Phil join us as he is a leading data privacy lawyer with experience on both sides of the Atlantic, having previously set up Field Fisher's office in Silicon Valley. Today's episode will be a continuation of our topic from the previous episode on data protection. During that session, we had discussed various issues such as the operational difficulties faced by undertakings both within and outside of the EU to meet requirements on international transfers under the EU GDPR and more recently by the Court of Justice of the European Union's decision in Schrems II. We also discussed the gap created between the requirements of the legislation and the reality faced by users of services requiring cross-border transfers to meaningfully review and assess uh, the arrangements in place, taking into account the requirements imposed under the GDPR and also SHRIMS too. We had finally rounded off that episode with the recognition that, despite the challenges, these rules reflect a conscious decision to introduce this type of restriction, leading us to query the reasons for which there is such a push to regulate transfers of personal data so strictly in the first place. So Phil, picking up from where we left off last time, taking into account these restrictions under the GDPR and also SHREMS 2, would you say that we are observing a push for protectionism over the cross-border custody and ownership of personal data? And I suppose, how do you see that interacting with what is in practice very much a global network of data flows? I think it's very hard to shake the perception that there's some sort of protectionism going on in the EU. Uh, as to whether that's really what's driving a lot of this regulation, I don't know that is necessarily the case or that it's necessarily the case in all quarters. I, I think the challenge that we have is that the data transfer requirements that have been imposed, particularly as a result of SHREMS 2, have turned the whole sort of analysis around data transfers into such an ec academic exercise that is almost impossible to satisfy completely in practice that um, it's become very far removed from the reality of how data works. I mean, I think you just described it as being, uh, you know, some of this regulation as being slippery. I have I, often described, sort of said to people in the past that trying to, you know, protect all data all the time is a bit like trying to catch snowflakes as they fall from the sky. There's just a lot of it and you won't, you can't <laughs> grab it all your hands. Um, I, I, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but but I, I think it. I think the danger is that if you make rules too tight, too difficult, ultimately what ends up happening is that you push organisations that otherwise intend, with the best of intentions, to achieve compliance. You just push them into a position where compliance becomes impossible, and then you create the perception that they are somehow, you know, willfully non-compliant or mm. ignoring the law when really that just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, 
so uh, you know I, I think the result of Schrems 2 is that we are moving away from the original intent of the GDPR which was to to regulate transfers of data and keep data safe into something that is looking a lot closer to a data localization requirement almost kind of compelling organizations to keep data in the EU simply because to transfer data to the standard that the regulators expect to see is just becoming a, a sort of a, 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 an almost impossible task. Um, of course, we live in a very global, globally connected world, so I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. But what I do think will happen is that we will see more organizations transferring data uh, under, uh, you know, accepting a level of risk around that and inevitably some degree of regulatory hazard as certain companies get picked upon by regulators essentially to be made an example of. And I, I think interestingly this morning, um, I was actually giving a presentation to our team internally about the EU's new data act as well, which is a piece of legislation that's also going to regulate non-personal data. And uh, you know, within that, there are also rules around transfers of non-personal data too, almost kind of applying GDPR standards to, to non-personal data transfers. So you can sort of see that the kind of rules we've introduced to the GDPR that have then been bolted on with TREMS 2 are now creeping into non-personal data as well. So I think the reality is that data exports are, are going to become more difficult. And as that happens, the perception that the EU is trying to establish some sort of protectionism and, and just use it to promote its own industries is going to be a perception that will grow. I mean, with all these things happening, I, I, I'm interested to know from you that whether other countries are still looking to the GDPR, particularly smaller jurisdictions, whether they're still looking to the GDPR as the kind of gold standard uh, to achieve when they're developing their own privacy regulation. What do you think? Mm. I really, really appreciate what you say about this, this point about the EU being perceived as trying to pull all the data in its own direction and within, within its own market, because I think when it comes to let's say, encouraging the, the spread of GDPR, it's partly what the EU is using to enforce sort of such a spread is effectively its market because it requires external service providers to get on top of its own rules. Um, and, and therefore that is a, a, for, a form of enforced exp export of GDPR as the gold standard. So, you know, there, there is a practical angle to calling a gold standard when it comes to the markets that are most heavily reliant or, or at least exposed to, to European personal data in that respect. Um, now, in terms of a voluntary adoption of the GDPR as the gold standard, I think that does depend on where you look, uh, because I think it's fair to say that GDPR is a Western, it is a product of Western regulation in that sense. Uh, but I think Looking at that sort of sphere of in influence, for example, the BVI and uh, Cayman data protection legislation is closely inspired by, by GDPR. Um, so there, I think, it, again, it is fair to say that there is an element of truth in terms of calling the GDPR a gold standard. Now, there are, I think, some challenges to that role. For example, specifically in the context of BVI and Cayman that I mentioned, um, the adoption of those rules were sort of in the run up to Brexit, that those discussions were parallel to Brexit. So I think it remains to be seen how this position will change if we see the UK diverging from the GDPR, um, given the relationship that BVI and Cayman has, for example, with, uh, with, with, the, with the UK over the EU. 
And then another interesting development to look out for will, of course, be the US, because at present we see very fragmented regulation there. But obviously we've seen, you know, California has come out with its own um, with its own uh, privacy rules. Um, there is more and more discussion of, uh, of privacy regulation in the US more generally. So I think going back to the marketing point that we made at the beginning that, you know, whether you are the gold standard depends, you know, on what kind of clout you have to require others to, <laughs> to take heed of what you're requiring. Um, if the US comes out with its own more organized set of rules, um, that, you know, that may will change the position of the GDPR. Um, and the final point there is, of course, in terms of an emerging gold standard, uh, if there is a version that is more competitive, as you say, um, I think we will see a preference for that uh, as well, to the extent possible in terms of structuring operations. Um, so there was something I wanted to touch upon in the context of, of Brexit. Uh, so we mentioned earlier that there is alignment currently, but what approach do you see the UK taking since Brexit in the context of international transfers and maybe GDPR more broadly? Do you see a commitment uh, to maintaining sort of parity with, with the EU in this field or any, are we observing any tendency to diverging from that? Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I think when we talk about the GDPR applying in the UK, it's quite important for people to understand that we actually have essentially two GDPRs. We've got the, the EU GDPR, uh, which applies in the EU countries. And now we have a separate UK GDPR. And basically what happened was that when Brexit occurred, uh, the UK essentially cut and paste the EU GDPR into UK law with a few changes to make it work for the EU. But broadly speaking, the, the UK GDPR and the EU GDPR are identical. As you've um, as you've sort of alluded to, uh, but you know the whole point of Brexit, uh, whether you're for or against it, was for the UK to be able to carve its own uh, its own path going forward. And so I think the um, the inevitability is that the UK law will diverge from European Union law over time. Um, the the big question I think on everybody's mind is you know how far. It will diverge. Um, obviously, while we maintain very close consistency with the EU GDPR, the UK gets the benefit of being considered an adequate country, meaning that it is one of the whitelisted countries that data can be transferred safely to and from. The more we start to diverge from uh, the EU GDPR over time, and we have in the UK published a national data strategy making various proposals about how we might remove some of the GDPR's red tape and simplify some things. And you know, we may look to uh, engage in more sort of open international data transfers than the EU does. The more we do those things, the more we put at risk uh, our ability to um, maintain an adequacy finding from the EU. I think the big strategic decision for UK government to make is, is maintaining close parity with the EU GDPR, is that worth the benefit uh, of being considered adequate? Or does diverging from the GDPR to, in a way that enables more flexibility and reduction in red tape, um, is that worth abandoning EU adequacy to achieve that? Um, I, you know, There's a lot of people who get very concerned about the UK losing adequacy. I think I'm slowly coming around to the view that removing some of the more difficult parts of the EU GDPR 
the more sort of regulation for regulation's sake points rather than things that actually provide substantive protection for data. Removing some of those, even if it perhaps jeopardizes our EU adequacy finding, would be a positive mm. path forward. Yeah, so that, that basically brings us back full circle to the point about competitiveness on, on some level, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's it's so new that it remains to be seen how, how it all pan out. But at the end of the day, everyone will eventually try to find something that is, that is easier. So I don't think that, you know, the challenges of that, the practical challenges that GDPR uh, presents will eventually be a hurdle <laughs> to further development. Now, I think we are sort of short for time. So I just wanted to turn to something a little bit more fun before we close off. Um, what are your thoughts and expectations uh, in terms of privacy in the metaverse? And here I was thinking about something that perhaps we've already experienced in the context of, you know, um, mass, uh, mass gaming, uh, online gaming, for example, World of Warcraft, and how does that potentially compare to, to the new obsession with the metaverse in terms of privacy? So it's funny, I, I think I'm, I'm one of those people who is sort of half excited by what technology can achieve <laughs> and half terrified by what it can do. Um, I, I think when it comes to the metaverse, uh, I guess I've got maybe two or three thoughts. The first is that I think when people talk about the metaverse, they often tend to think of it in this kind of gaming context. Um, but I think its applications are actually going to be much wider than that. I think what we are looking at is, you know, the potential development of virtual reality, augmented reality, cross-reality uh, applications and services that can function both in the gaming environment, but also in a business environment. You know, some of the applications I sort of see talked about, for example, are the idea that, you know, you might be able to engage in, uh, you know, a video conference for people where you put on a virtual reality headset or some special glasses or something, and you see avatars of people sitting around you. So you can almost, it's almost like you're engaging in person, even though it's all done over sort of like a video type call. I mean, stuff like that, I think could be, could be really fun. Um, I think, so I, I think that, you know, at the moment people are talking about the metaverse in very conceptual terms. And I think there's, there's a, a, still a, um, a lack of concrete proposals in terms of what the metaverse is actually going to do, what it's actually going to look like. So th there's a lot of fun imagining what it might be. I, I think perhaps, you know, there's only a few people who really know how it's going to develop over time. I think um, I, the second thought, I guess, is that, you know, the metaverse, if we are talking about a world where we can interact in augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, you know, it's going to put pressure on privacy in the way that a lot of new technologies do. I mean, you know, you know sort of a year, two years ago, everybody was talking about blockchain and they were talking about some of the challenges around that, about the fact that, you know, once... Um, once data is entered into the ledger on the blockchain, it can never be removed. You know, what does that mean for GDPR principles around processing data for no longer than is necessary? I think we'll see similar things with, with the metaverse, although perhaps even more extreme, because we will see issues around, you know, people wearing or, you know, uh, devices that enable them to see the world in augmented reality. But as they do so, they're capturing images or audio about people or places that they travel around. You know, those things are going to put pressures on privacy and we're going to have to work out how to deal with those things. And then I think the, the, the third point, I guess, is that, um, you know, the, the metaverse either may be the next big thing or it may be the next big flop, um, you know, and a lot of that, I think, is going to turn on the degree to which people have trust in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. And we're emerging from a sort of period of the Internet where, you know, the Internet developed as something that was very exciting initially. And over time, people have become a little bit more wary of it because of some of the 
uh, some of the online tracking or some of the, the, the content issues that arise on the internet. So I, I think the great thing with the metaverse is we have an opportunity to start again and say, okay, we're going to launch this thing. You know, what, how, how do we do this right? How do we overcome some of the prob problems that we've experienced with the internet and build for a metaverse that doesn't do that? And I think if we can get that right, then I think the metaverse can be turned into something really fun and really safe mm. and something that will mm. attract a, a lot of attention. But if we get it wrong, absolutely the opposite will be true. So I, I'm, I, I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful, but, <laughs> but we have to wait and see. Well, I hope, I hope it will be the positive version, but we shall see. So thank you very much for that. I believe that brings this episode to an end. Uh, to all our listeners, if you're interested in further information, we cover data privacy and other interesting topics on the Harney's regulatory blog. You can also visit Field Fisher's Privacy, Security and Information Law blog, which focuses, as its name suggests, on all matters privacy, security and information law. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope to see you on our next episode. Mm -hmm.